We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Well, good morning, Cornwall Church. Happy St. Patrick's Day. For many of you, nice wearing of the green. For those that forgot, don't pinch us. That's elementary. Don't do that. Uh, If we've not met, I'm Brian Mengel. I'm one of our pastors here at Cornwall Church, specifically uh, to our Skagit campus, who is watching us on the big screen. Uh, Greetings to those watching in Boca and online as well. It is good to be with you this weekend. And as I was preparing for this weekend... I spent a little time sleeping in yesterday, and I was thinking back to that time, that very special time every week when parents got to sleep in a little bit longer and kids got to veg out on the couch without the necessity of an iPad or an iPod or an Xbox, this phenomenon known as Saturday morning cartoons. Amen. Smurfs and He-Man and She-Ra and Garfield and Bugs Bunny and Jetsons and Inspector Gadget and Scooby-Doo. There seems, though, to be one cartoon that has stood the test of time. Transformers. Launching back in September of 1987, the Transformers followed the adventures of these robots that could change or morph from vehicles or other objects. And as kids watching on TV or as adults watching on the big screen, we seem to find ourselves fascinated or captivated with this idea of transformation. And today, as we continue in this series, as Pastor Scott mentioned, of Jesus is a subject, we find ourselves exactly in the middle of that reality. About a week after Jesus told the disciples that he would suffer, that he would die, and he'd be raised to life, and talking through the implications of what it looked like to follow after him, he would famously say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And following that, we find Jesus at an event that would put any Transformers movie to shame. So whether you have your Bible or the app, Take a look at the screen here as we pick up in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark. It says this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Now with the luxury of knowing the end, maybe you find it hard sometimes to place yourself in the middle of the story. What I mean is, for Peter, James, and John, they had no idea about what was about to happen. 
At this point, they've been with Jesus long enough to know this was probably more than a day hike. But what was about to happen, what was about to come, they would have no idea. And even if they had a guess, it probably wasn't this. As they were on the mountain, there he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. The story of the transfiguration is located near the midpoint of the Gospel of Mark. And along with Peter's confession, this is the turning point of Jesus' ministry. Because to this point, it's been about teaching and preaching. And now he'll begin to lay the groundwork for the end of his earthly ministry as he prepares to die. Now notice Mark uses the word transfiguration, not transformation. It's a key difference. They are synonyms, yes, but there is a slight difference between the two. Jesus' transfiguration is rooted in the word for metamorphos. Metamorphos, meta to change and morph form. So in other words, to change form. So then the transfiguration is a change in appearance or form, a metamorphosis, while transformation is the action of being changed. In other words, think of transformation as the process. Transfiguration is the result. If you've been to the Pacific Science Center in any recent years, maybe you've made your way into the butterfly house. It's a 4,000 square foot pavilion of free-flying butterflies all around you. They land on trees and plants, and if you're lucky, on your shoulder or your fingertip. But there is a must-see part of the butterfly house. It's off to the right, a window that looks into a box with 30 to 40 chrysalis sacs. And in those caterpillars that are in process of metamorphosis as they change their form. That's what we're talking about. Transformation is the process until they are transfigured the result. And make no mistake, this is no David Copperfield illusion. This was something never before seen. This was a jaw-dropping experience. Mark records it this way. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. The ESV will say it this way. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark makes Jesus sound like an OxyClean commercial. Dazzling white, radiant white. But these are the words that Mark had come up with to describe this amazing moment that Jesus' transfiguration had caused his clothes to shine whiter than white. Matthew will even tag into this in his gospel. He'll say, he, Jesus, transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. You see, in this moment, Jesus transfigured to who he truly was. He took on the appearance of the king of glory rather than just a humble man. He momentarily changed the outside to match the reality of the inside. The outside matching the reality of the inside. Paul would write to the Colossians and say this, For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus had always been God, but he took on human flesh to be one of us. Philippians 2.6 says, In very nature God, he, Jesus, did not consider equality something to be taken advantage of. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, becoming in human likeness. 
So what's truly incredible about this event is Jesus' transfiguration provided a glimpse of glory. It provided them and us a glimpse of glory, a peek behind the curtain. That Jesus was man, but he was also God in flesh. In other words, Jesus' divine nature was veiled in human form. So the revealing of God here was a first. Now, if you know your Bible, maybe you'd say, well, what about Jacob or Moses or Isaiah? You know, Moses indicates that he spoke to God face to face. But a careful look at the context and the history, we see this as figurative, not literal. The truth is, as John records in his gospel, no one, no one has seen the face of God. Now, on a great day like this, you might say, well, I see God all around me. His creation, nature, actions of people. But this, too, is not God. This is evidence of God. Like I said, the glimpse of glory here was a first. For three years, Jesus' disciples lived day in and day out. They learned from, they built relationship with, they shared life experiences with. James, John, Peter, they found themselves in the inner circle. And in this moment, they would see Jesus as no one else ever would. They got to see the glorified Christ standing right there before him. And why is that? Why did he do that? Jesus' transfiguration solidified who he claimed to be. Who he claimed to be. The transfiguration reaffirmed Jesus' identity, revealed his glory, and called the disciples to listen to him. Just one chapter previous, Jesus would ask, who do you say I am? And Peter would answer, you are the Christ. Here at Cornwall Church, Pastor Bob makes music references, and Pastor Kip makes military references, and I stick with highly theological Disney references. <laughs> I was thinking more than Cinderella's dress or Ariel's mermaid tail, I think the beast from Beauty and the Beast best illustrates this point. As you think about the beast tucked away in his castle, he knew he was royalty. He knew he was a prince. He knew he was the master of a kingdom, but he was locked into a different exterior. And so toward the end, spoiler alert, when he becomes Prince Adam, Belle sees you are who you claim to be. It was a bold example, and it affirmed to them what he had said before. You see, the transfiguration was not something Jesus did because he was bored or wanted to go viral or wanted to shock them. He didn't mince words and he didn't mince actions. This mountaintop moment had a clear and express purpose to firm the faith of Peter, James, and John. As if to huddle them up on the sideline and say, guys, you're going to hear a lot of things about me, about who I am and what I'm doing, who my dad is. But I want you to know this, I am who I say I am, period. Now, Pastor Bob would say, that is a great place to end the sermon. And Pastor Bob would also say, but we're not going to do that. So we're going to keep going. We head back to the mountaintop, and it says this, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, I would have loved to have been there to see the look on their faces First, Jesus takes them on this hike. Then he transfigures. And next, 
These two all-stars from the Old Testament are standing before them. They too having had mountaintop experiences with God. Moses had passed away about 1,400 years previous, and Elijah about 900, but there they were, alive in glory, talking to Jesus. And then Peter, oh, Peter. <laughs> Peter pulls a Peter. Or if you're a Washington State fan, Peter coogs it. We take a look at what he says. Oh, that wasn't popular? I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Rabbi. It is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Did you catch this? In his surprise, in his excitement, he suggests building three shelters. Your version might say tents, or memorials, or tabernacles, or pedestals. The bottom line is that he was so excited, he blurts out this idea. Now, if country music had existed back then, I suspect Jesus would have turned the radio on had Alison Krauss sing, Peter, you say it best when you say nothing at all. <laughs> I mean, I feel for the guy. I love Peter. I'm sure he wanted these guys to stick around, pull up a chair. I've got things to ask you. And I'm sure he was also at a loss for words. In fact, Mark tells us so. He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. Charles Spurgeon said this of Peter, he was open-hearted, bold, and enthusiastic. And to my mind, there is something lovable about Peter. In my opinion, we need more Peters in the church. They are rash and impulsive, but there is a fire and esteem in them, and they keep us going. So while our first inclination when we read about Peter is maybe to face palm, the truth is we've been there before. You know, when you blurt something out in excitement and then, you know, two, three, four words in, you wish you could stop, but you can't. You are committed. <laughs> and provided our vantage point is a little bit different, I think we can understand Peter's heart. But what Peter couldn't see and what we cannot miss is it's very significant these men were there. For Moses, he was the mediator of the old covenant the giver of the law. And Elijah stood at the head of a long line of prophets. And so in summarizing the testimony of the Old Testament, Scripture speaks of the law and the prophets. And so here we see the meeting of the two. And more than that, we see them making way for Christ Jesus, which had been foreshadowed. That's why they were there. But to eliminate any confusion for Peter, James, and John, God steps in says this then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud this is my son whom i love listen to him suddenly when they looked around they no longer saw anyone with them except jesus if you've been to a circus before you know there is often a lot happening all at once Performers and music and elements and sounds and lights all vying for your attention. And sometimes, oftentimes, it takes a single spotlight on the ringmaster to indicate to your brain, focus here. Make your attention right here. Here God clears the deck in the same way and puts a fine focus on Jesus Ensuring that Peter, James, and John don't miss the point. As if to say, don't miss this. 
And just as their experience began, it ends the same way, just simply Jesus. Moses was not the subject, and Elijah was not the subject. Jesus was the subject. And it took a godly reminder. This is my son. Now listen up to him. It's a great reminder that then and now God lovingly corrects us. And note that that is correction. It's not punishment. God didn't punish Peter for his exuberant excitement or his ill-placed words. And for those in God's family, you know this to be true as well. He knows our heart. He knows what we're trying to say even when we say it wrong. God loved Peter. Jesus loved Peter. But Peter needed gentle correction, a refocus. Same way, God loves you, Jesus loves you, and yet there are times when you too need gentle correction, a refocus. Job 5.17 says, Blessed is the one who God corrects. And Hebrews 12 will say, For the Lord corrects those he loves. And maybe perhaps most famously, the reminder from Solomon that we cannot rely on our own understanding and instead we have to lean in. We have to trust in the Lord and when we submit to his correction, Proverbs 3, 6 will say, he makes our paths straight. I think of being a dad to my kids Alyssa and Dylan and the times that I offer correction, loving correction, correction without anger or punishment, That is what a loving father does, what an intentional coach does, what a good teacher does. So may we not be shy or concerned or shy away from godly correction. The truth is it makes you wiser, it makes you shine brighter, and it helps sculpt you more like Christ. So there's Peter, James, John, Jesus atop the mountain. And following this incredible event, they come down from their retreat, and we know that Peter, and likely the other two, would have loved to have stayed longer, having had this mountaintop experience. But their return was necessary. But as they're making their way back down, Jesus has a simple request, one that he has made previous. It's this. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. What a seemingly impossible ask. Don't tell anyone. This is incredible. I want to tell everyone. And Jesus is saying it's the opposite of show and tell because he would never show his transfigured self ever again. And the disciples were instructed not to tell anyone. Now, want to read ahead? Check out 2 Peter 1:16 through 18. You'll see Peter account this whole thing, this whole experience in detail, but not now. They will keep it to themselves for now as Jesus directed. But it didn't stop them from wondering and talking about and discussing and reflecting. You see, what we don't know, what we don't understand, what we don't grasp about Jesus ought to make you want to know more. It should make you want to be more like Peter and pursue understanding. Pursue understanding. Because as Christians, Jesus doesn't want us to be robots 
And Jesus does not hide behind a cloud of mystery. So pursue an understanding about him. Pursue him. Jump into the deep end of the pool and dive deep. The greatest learners of our time operate with one rule. Ask questions and seek to understand. Might we have a reckless desire to know all we can know about Jesus? And Peter, James, and John, they got it. It's why they kept discussing. Rising from the dead, what do you think that means? What's that all about? And while the transfiguration gave them a greater realization about the deity of Christ, they still fully couldn't comprehend it, at least not yet. But they didn't settle. They didn't settle, and neither should we. Now, one more thing. To this point, Mark's gospel is full of some awesome Jesus moments. This is certainly near the top. But don't get transfixed on the transfiguration. Don't get transfixed on the transfiguration because it's only part of the story. Let me be clear what I mean because I don't want to diminish this incredible Jesus moment. This was pivotal. It's where humanity would meet God, where the temporal would meet the eternal. But it's only part of the story. We're in Mark 9. There is so much more to come. There is a bigger puzzle that Pastor Bob, Pastor Kip, and I are piecing together. And if we get high-centered on what is cool or what is shiny or what is directly in front of us, we risk losing sight of what's on the sides or the bigger story, or what's critically important. Last fall, I, I took a soul care day at Washington Park in Anacortes. And if you've been to Washington Park, you know what a beautiful, expansive park it is. The east side of the park, there is a two-mile road that follows the water for most before ducking into a canopy of trees. And I remember it was an incredibly beautiful Thomas Kincaid portrait kind of day. The sun was shining, the blue sky was there, and the park was uniquely quiet. And I remember walking on this two-mile road and admiring the landscape, and I had worship blasting in my ears, and I was just in the zone. That is until I heard, Bop! and I turn around, I rip my earbuds out, I turn around, no joke, this close to me was the bumper of a Range Rover. As I would come to learn in talking to him and the car behind him, they had been following me for about 10 minutes. <laughs> I had become so transfixed in this moment of what was right in front of me, I didn't notice two cars that really wanted to also enjoy that two-mile road that day. Maybe that's happened to you as well. During a Hawks game, you're transfixed on the TV, wondering if Russell Wilson's going to get rid of the ball or not, and your spouse says something to you, but you miss it. You are transfixed on the game. Or maybe so transfixed on your to-do list for the day, the errands you've got to run, the things you've got to pick up, getting kids here and there, you're so transfixed you miss your God time for the day. So my warning acknowledges what we've just read in Mark's account is incredible, it is miraculous, it's pivotal. But that's not the end of the story. There is more to come. So don't find yourself locking in on this one part 
or you might find yourself in the middle of the road getting honked at. Okay? All right. Next up, Mark takes us from the mountain to a miracle. From the high top mountain to an experience with a man. It says this, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Okay, those pesky teachers of the law again, this time in a squabble with the disciples about a demon-possessed boy. We read on. It says this, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. Pause there. There's debate about why is it that he was still shining bright? Is it the fact that it was Jesus in their midst? We don't know. But we do know that his presence caused them to run and wonder. And it says, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd pops up and says this. Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. So Jesus and his disciples come down from the mountain and instantly in the thick of ministry. I was telling my small group last week that I've greatly appreciated this series because we've gotten to see a little of humanity of Jesus saying and thinking how we say things and feel things. And in what he's about to say, I would offer we see maybe just a percentage of a glimpse of Jesus maybe being exhausted or frustrated. It says this, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. The New Living Translation says it this way, Jesus said, you faithless people, how long must I be with you, put up with you, bring the boy to me? Maybe you remember your parents saying something like this. How many times do I have to tell you? Now there's a debate as to who he's speaking to, but nevertheless, they do as he asked. It says, they brought him, and when the spirits saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. Before we go on, I just wanted to say something about this demon. Realizing his time is short, Realizing who is calling the boy to him. He attempts some last-minute damage, falling to the ground, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. Following a quick assessment, the father offers this. But if you can do anything, take pity on us, and help us. Now, for you and I, this might seem like a benign comment. If you can help me on Saturday, that would be great. Hey, if you could stop by later, I'd sure appreciate it. But you and I, we are not Jesus. And so the word if has a different implication when it comes to the Son of God. He says this, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, we don't get to know the inflection, but only that he said it. Was it if I can? Or was it if I can? Or was it if I can? We don't know. The truth is inflection's not important. But there are two key words in his response that are if and everything. If is irrelevant, irrelevant when it comes to Jesus. 
And everything is possible when it comes to Jesus. It's also important to note that if was not about Jesus' ability. It was about the man's faith. And he knows it. So he says this. Immediately, the boy's father exclaims, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Some versions will say, help me with more belief. There's something about immediate responses. They're unrehearsed and they're unplanned and often they're the most honest. I mean, check out what he says. I do believe... Plus, help me with my unbelief. Total double negative. He did believe in Jesus' power, otherwise he wouldn't have asked. But he recognizes his own doubts. Help me believe. In this interchange, we see the Father affirmed Jesus' ability, and Jesus tested his faith. The Father affirming, Jesus, I know you can do it. Jesus testing his faith back. The father's saying, I believe, but I don't. Or my faith is solidly shaky. Or him saying, will you? And Jesus says, I can. And he says, can you? And Jesus says, I will. Jesus picks up the people are coming and he says, when Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus, showing great compassion here, took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. British evangelist G. Campbell Morgan says, Here, Jesus finds disputing describes a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. And moments later... He silences the scribes, he comforts the father, he heals the boy, and he teaches the disciples. And this is one of those moments we don't get to know what happens next. What did the boy say? What did the dad say? What did the teachers say? The crowd? We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus did a couple things. One, he firmed the faith of the dad. Two, he handled the situation with ease. And three, he provided another hands-on teaching opportunity. And as we read on, we see that lesson is not quite done. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it, the demon, out? He replied, this can come only out only by prayer. Now, it wasn't prayer and fasting that makes us more worthy to cast out demons. It is prayer and fasting that draws us closer to God in proximity that puts us in line with him and his power and puts us in a total dependence of him. You might remember back in Mark 3, Jesus had already given them this authority to do so. But that authority was only effective when it was exercised by a pure, total faith. It's why we must be careful about believing with an unbelief. Believing with an unbelief. Notice that Jesus worked with a man with doubts. Jesus works with us and our doubts. But that is not a blank check for us to cash in when it's convenient. Jesus wants our belief in him. And either you're all in or you aren't. And I would offer this with all love and care. A half belief in Jesus 
is no belief at all. You wouldn't drink milk that was half good. You wouldn't hop on a plane that was, with an engine that was half working. You wouldn't bungee jump with a cord that you half believed in. Either the bungee cord is secure or not, and the engine is operational or not, and the milk is either good or not. So don't get caught believing with an unbelief. Instead, do the work. Pursue understanding. And remember back from our James series, ask the questions and get the wisdom and then stand firm. 1 Corinthians says, be on the alert and stand firm in your faith. Be steadfast and immovable. Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. One other major piece of our ability to firm our belief is to look for or seek after only Jesus moments. You know what these are like. These are the moments when others may be engaged, but only Jesus gets the credit. When our faith is made stronger only, only because Jesus is involved. When we get to the ends of our rope, and like the Father, we exclaim, I believe, help with my unbelief. And only Jesus can make the difference. The transfiguration, sure, others were present, but only possible by Jesus. The healing of the boy, sure, others were involved, but it was only Jesus who made the difference. So recognizing and sharing only Jesus' moments cause a watching world to take notice and pause, even if for a moment, to wonder. So seek after those only Jesus moments in your everyday life and one by one stand witness to the fact that Jesus can do all things, everything. There's no if involved. So where do we go from here? I mean, short of a mountaintop experience, how can Jesus firm his place in your life? How can Jesus prove to you who he is today? How can he move you from an unbelief to a belief? How can he help you remove the if statements from your conversations and your prayers? Maybe it's a realization, a shift in your mind and in your heart. Or perhaps you've lived this life or your, your Christian walk has had Jesus as one-dimensional. Well, he is not. He is not. I borrowed this from my son, Dylan. And you know what's cool about Transformers? Is that they look from the outside as one thing. They look to be one-dimensional. But with a couple of moves and a couple of flips, they can transform. And they show you who they really are on the inside. When it debuted on TV in 1987, the series was Transformers, more than meets the eye. And I would offer, Jesus sure fits the bill. Nine chapters in, Jesus clearly remains the subject and is more than meets the eye. He appeared as a man, but was most definitely God. He served as a carpenter and a teacher, but he was 
definitely a healer and a preacher. He was uniquely patient, though internally he knew time was short. And he asked the questions, but he already knew the answers. Jesus is, as Pastor Bob has said, our North Star, our beginning, our end, our Savior, our Comforter, our Redeemer, our Father, our Friend, the Christ. And have no doubt, Jesus, like a transformer, is so much more than meets the eye. And the best part is, he wants to meet you right where you are.